You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 237. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com for our Your Stock Artake segment, and we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you again this week, and even better to be welcoming back a key member of the Killer Bees, Mr. Brennan Habetler, fresh off a friend's stag to Vegas and his subsequent liver replacement surgery. In honor of his return, we are going to have Brennan kick off the show this week, briefly touching on the Q4 results of a few Canadian banks, discussing how the bank's mortgages by remaining amortization schedules are progressing, and he's going to look at the Canadian housing market generally. I will present a quick segment from my Canadian Money Show talk from last week, in which I talked about how market bifurcation has led to a potential opportunity in high-quality small-cap stocks something we have already seen playing out to tremendous gains in our small cap, Canadian small cap, uh, focused by portfolio in November. Aaron has a Your Stock, Our Take for viewers on Element Fleet Management Corp, symbol EFN on the TSX, the world's largest automotive fleet manager. The company has produced positive financial performance in both 2022 and 2023 and has a positive outlook for growth next year. It has a growing dividend, but does it offer value Value right now? Aaron will let you know. Brett will take a look at Champion Iron Ore Limited, simple CIA on the TSX, an iron ore producer which owns and operates the Bloom Lake Mining Complex located in Labrador Trough, north of Vermont, Quebec. The company recently reported its Q2 results that showed record production, not yet to the levels anticipated, but in a more stable pricing environment. Brett revisits Champion to see if this metal miner is strong enough to hold a position in your portfolio. All right, let's get to the show. We welcome my co-host, Mr. Aaron Dunn and the Killer Bees. Brett and Brennan, how are you guys doing? Doing well. Glad to be back. Good. Good to be back. You guys are back fresh from a trip to Hawaii or Uh, something. I'm not sure if Brennan is back. He's got the holiday look. That's why I wore it is... uh... Um, this was actually uh, uh, several of the guys got matching shirts, so I was actually running around Vegas in this shirt with a bunch of and you matching boneheads. Hooligans. <laughs> I, I've changed it, but uh, but yeah, my trip to Vegas was a lot of fun. What did you have most fun doing? I'd say the n- nightclub. We went to Zook nightclub to club. see Zed, which is like an EDM uh, DJ. Essentially, that was probably the funnest. Um, but I mean, the hockey game was great. You know, uh, we, we ended up seeing the, the Knights, obviously, against the Coyotes. And I mean, it's like, who cares about the Coyotes? However, uh, Connor Ingram from Saskatoon was in net for the Coyotes, and he ended up getting a shutout. So we were all kind of like secretly cheering uh, up in our section, which was nice. Um, and then the football game, it was crazy. I mean, these guys have heard me uh, 
uh, complain about how much I've spent on the ticket multiple, multiple times leading and up to this event. And how much was that, Brennan? Can you tell us? It, it was $1,000 uh, Canadian. Oh, um, nobody wants to hear which, that. Which, again, I mean, if we didn't, if we went anywhere else, it would have been a lot cheaper. Uh, we ended up seeing the Raiders versus the Chiefs. Um, or if what, anyone I, else booked the tickets, it would have been cheaper. But probably, probably. We had pretty good seats. We were like right on like maybe the 40 or 30 yard line, second deck though, upper bowl. Um, but I mean, I thought it was worth the money, you know, but I spend $1,000 again. I don't know about that, but you know, 500 bucks. Sure, sure. But I had a lot of fun, um, but I'm glad to be back. And I was a little under the weather for a couple of days coming back. And um, I don't know. Under the weather get... or just rec- in withdrawal well, or just recovering and as well my flight oh i was so i was the angriest person on my flight back we ended up getting stuck in calgary because it sucks flying into saskatoon or out of saskatoon you always have to stop in calgary or vancouver and uh we ended up getting stuck on the runway for about two hours um because we were waiting for fuel but the reason we were waiting for fuel is because we needed to get there uh the, the comms between or the communication between the flight attendants and the pilots were down. So they ended up taxiing us back. It, it was a nightmare. I didn't end up getting home till like 6 a.m. Saskatoon time, which... Uh, when were you yeah, supposed to like, get home? Uh, like 2 in the morning. So it oh, was okay. like significantly delayed. Yeah. Even when we landed in Saskatoon, we ended up having to wait for another like uh, 15 to 20 minutes on the tarmac couldn't you have just went by dog sled wouldn't that <laughs> have been better yeah, just kidding there, there's no so. snow outside no snow this year there's, yeah there's no I snow heard, i heard are we gonna have a, a i guess it's not a white christmas you'll get a white christmas? christmas don't worry you'll get a white christmas <laughs> yeah, probably we, we're we're wishing for one out here probably not brennan aaron are you wishing for a white christmas <laughs> yeah, of course okay good I love a white christmas. aaron's a magical christmas guy that's why he's always have you seen his mug right? Make a snowman. It's and, true. Uh, it is. We got to get that. Card. We made. We're making that announcement. We're gonna do some swag. We're gonna give away December. some Keystone mugs. We're getting them ordered ASAP, and we're gonna get those uh, giving them away to some of the best your stock art takes and some upcoming podcasts. So we'll do that for sure. But let's get into it, Brennan. You wanted to talk about uh, the big banks, right? You got yeah. Uh, yeah. I've got kind of a big recurring section that I've been doing. Uh, a big recurring uh, on section on the big banks. Uh, well, That's and a lot on of housing big, and the amortization schedules and whatnot. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, I've been doing this recurring segment since May, uh, which was essentially spurred um, when I discovered, uh, let me just share my screen here. This makes for great Sorry. radio. I discovered uh, that Canadian banks were beginning to extend mortgage amortization periods on outstanding mortgages to help ease the pain of some Canadians facing higher interest rates and ongoing inflationary pressures. So uh, now that the banks have reported their Q4 2023 results, uh, I thought that I would go over some of the few points from their financials, look at how their mortgages by remaining amortization schedules are progressing, and have a quick discussion about the housing market. Uh, so looking at TD first, so they reported a 14% decline in Q4 adjusted EPS. And for fiscal year 2023, uh, there was a 4% decline in adjusted EPS. Now the provision for credit losses increased about 42% year over year, which were higher than analyst expectations. 
And for fiscal 2024, management provided the comments saying that they believe it will be challenging for the bank to meet its medium term adjusted EPS growth target range of 7 to 10% and return on equity target of 16% uh, or greater than 16% due to elevated expenses, including investments to enhance risk and control infrastructure, uh, as well as just for investments to accelerate growth. Um, they also noted that further normalizations in provisions for credit losses uh, are anticipated, which could make it hard to achieve those earnings targets. Um, now, the company has implemented a restructuring program, which is expected to generate approximately $400 million pre-tax in savings in fiscal 2024 and an annual run rate savings of approximately $600 million pre-tax. Uh, and the cost savings will be primarily driven by a 3% workforce reduction, as well as real estate optimization and asset impairments. And you'll see the common theme here. Uh, all of the banks that I covered actually increased their dividend. Uh, TD increased their dividend by 6.3% to $1.02 per share. Now, looking at the uh, amortization schedule here uh, for TD, uh, we are seeing the number of mortgages with an amortization period of greater than 30 years come down to about 20% of all Canadian mortgages. Now, this is down from about 29% year over year if we compared it to October 2022. But again, just a reminder, there were zero mortgages which had an amortization of greater than 30 years in October of 2021. So while it is improving, if we compare it to two years ago when rates were significantly lower, uh, we continue to see them elevated from you know the 2021 uh, period. Looking at CIBC, uh, they reported a 16% increase in Q4 adjusted EPS and about a 5% decline for fiscal year 2023. Uh, their provision for credit losses increased 24%, which were actually below analyst expectations. Um, but similar to TD, CIBC is guiding its medium term three to five year adjusted EPS growth target range of seven to 10% and return on equity target of 16% or greater. Uh, but unlike for TD, uh, I looked through the conference call. I could not find uh, any comments on the uh, achievability of these targets. And they also increased their dividend 3.4% uh, to 90 cents per share. And the uh, amortization schedule. So they've also shown a slight improvement as well with mortgages uh, with an amortization of greater than 30 years, now at 24% of their Canadian mortgages, which is down from about 30% uh, year over year. Uh, moving to RBC, they reported flat adjusted EPS for Q4. And for fiscal year 2023, uh, adjusted EPS was actually up 2%. Now, provision for credit losses increased 89% year over year, uh, which were above analyst expectations. And management made the comment that uh, saying, we made progress on our cost reduction strategy, incurring bank-wide bank severance of $157 million and reducing all bank workforce by 1% to 2%, with the full run rate savings of $235 million to be realized starting next quarter, so starting fiscal, uh, Q1 of 2024. And like I was saying, uh, RBC also increased their dividend by 2% uh, to $1.38 per share. And like the other banks, we're also seeing improvement here with their mortgage, uh, with remaining amortization, um, with about 23% uh, of mortgages uh, having a greater than 30-year amortization, which is down from 27% uh, year over year. Now, I 
did touch on this when I did the segment last in August, so I will remove that from the screen first. Uh, uh, but but I'll, I'll briefly um, mention this. Um, so the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada said two-thirds of mortgages, mortgage holders in Canada are having trouble meeting their financial commitments. And as such, in July, the FCAC provided uh, new guidelines for banks on how to deal with at-risk consumers, uh, dealing with financial stress, uh, essentially with the aim of standardizing how lenders implement policies and pre uh, procedures. So seeing the slight improvement with each of the bank's mortgages by remaining amortization, these new guidelines may be helping banks from placing mortgage holders uh, on greater three uh, or on greater than 30 year amortization periods. Uh, but you know, that's just me speculating and switching gears to the housing market. So as you can see here, affordability declined further in the fall, driven by, of course, elevated rates and tight supply. And if we look at the chart here uh, that I have up on the screen from National Bank, the median resident in Vancouver is paying 100% of their median income on their mortgage payment. While Toronto is uh, slightly behind at approximately 85% and Montreal and Calgary uh, are more reasonable at uh, about just a little bit above 40%. But again, uh, you know, housing is not affordable and being uh, someone that wants to purchase a home, I'm still feeling that of course. Now, with elevated interest rates, lack of supply, and of course, like I just went over, horrible housing affordability, it is no surprise that we are seeing residential sales continue to pull back uh, with this uh, chart up on the screen showing the seasonally adjusted residential sales uh, at about 36,000 uh, across Canada. And if we look at housing starts, um, they've actually shown some resilient resiliency. Um, especially within the multiple dwelling properties. Um, but even in the commentary from National Bank, uh, you know, they, they noted that we will still need to see several months of these elevated housing starts before, you know, there will be any notable improvement on supply. And lastly, before I open it up to the guys here, uh, I just wanted to briefly mention the new federal government tax measure coming into effect on January 1st, which will no longer allow Airbnb and VRBO uh, or Verbo hosts to claim expenses against the income they make from their rentals. Uh, and Christia Friedland, Freeland believes that this new measure could free up as many as 30,000 homes. Now, I am somewhat skeptical on whether it could and will free up 30,000 homes. Uh, there's also, you know, another research report from the Conference Board of Canada Think Tank, uh, which I saw, uh, and they essentially concluded that the number of Airbnbs in Canada is too small to make a tangible dent in Canada's low housing stock. So will it help housing prices come down? You know, I'm not sure. I, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, and with that, that long drawn out segment, I'll open it up to uh, the gentleman. I got nothing to say. Anybody <laughs> no, got anything I mean, to say? Luke, I'm always interested in hearing uh, Brennan's take on the banking sector because he was the one that really brought my attention to how amortizations, um, the maturity of amortizations absolutely exploded post-COVID, right? Mm -hmm. We, you know, a quarter, quarter more of amortizations across the big banks being over 30 years. So, uh, you know, that's interesting. Yeah, I did wonder if there's any color on why the like higher rate, obviously, but reduction in the overall in the thirty plus years. Was there any color commentary you saw? On that not on that it? I saw. No, not. I'm, I'm going to make a guess here that it's it's just has to do with mortgages renewing, 
because yeah, I mean, that's the banks thought, but my understanding are allowing the mortgage amortizations to be extended on variable mortgages um, beyond like the 30, 35 years, in some cases, even indefinitely, but that's only for an existing mortgage. When you renew, you have to go back to the old rules, right? So as more of those mortgages renew, people are going to have to. Uh, I do wonder if that's going to cause some sales, right? Cause Sorry? some sales. Cause, I wonder if that's going to cause some sales because there are I'm some sure people. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if that will increase. And, and if that increases over the course of 2024, that might be a story. I'm sure it will. Yeah. There are a lot of people kind of crossing their fingers that rates come down uh, significantly. But, uh, you know, you're not going back to sub 2%, in my opinion. And uh, some people are facing 6, 7 plus right now. So, I mean, it's a big shock and we'll see if that starts to creep into housing prices over mm -hmm. the course of 2024. Yep. I mean, in terms of Brennan's comments on the VRBO and the Airbnb, I, I don't really have a ton. I would agree with you, Brennan. I don't think it's going to make a dent. I think it's a Band-Aid solution. One of the biggest problems I see in a lot of the areas where the housing affordability is the worst, like in Ontario and British Columbia, is that it just doesn't pay to be a landlord. I mean, the restrictions are so onerous. Um, landlords can't raise the rents, even though their costs are going up. It's just, it, a lot of people just don't want to do it anymore. So, I mean, I know people that were in the the rental business as landlords and they've, they've decided to just not be landlords any longer. Just not a good business proposition. So if they want people to rent their places, um, then they need to they need to make sure that that the structure incentivizes it. Yeah, and like, and it yeah. depends too on like the municipal, the the city municipality. <laughs> I can't spit it out, um, but because because I was talking to one of the, the a couple of dads came on the on the Vegas trip with us, and one of them has an Airbnb or place that he rents out in Canmore, um, and he was saying that the zoning that he has in Canmore is a seasonal home, so he couldn't even live there full full time if he wanted mm -hmm. so you know he's he's wondering if maybe it won't impact him because of that because of the zoning um but again i'm not sure i think we'll we'll get more clarity on january 1st um mm -hmm. but you know he's a little worried that maybe prices are, are going to come down um on his property there but we'll see i will say as well um here in calgary i have seen uh just when i've been perusing uh real estate here um, some are just directly advertised as Airbnb, as that's the selling proposition, not as a permanent place to live, as an investment opportunity. I think that's uh -huh. more what they're trying to crack down on instead of like Brennan's friend's yeah, dad, seasonal. where it's some seasonal, they're renting out the room. That doesn't seem to be the target, but it's very unclear because they haven't actually stated the direct uh, rules that they're implementing, which is the issue at this time. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a hot button issue and you can get political gains by mm -hmm. putting out there and saying we're cracking down affordable housing and whether it has any impact or not, uh, I'm not sure it matters to the sitting government. I think it, you know, trying to gain some political points. And the budget will right. balance itself. Yeah. Are we, um, I'm going to, I'm going to move to my section now. I'm going to share my screen right now and we're going to talk about uh something i talked about at the world out or sorry the money show 
just this past week. And that was essentially um, market bifurcation. It's led to some opportunities in high quality small caps kind of heading into 2024. We've already seen this in our Canadian small cap portfolio really pronounced uh, in uh, October, November, where we see a real jump up in terms of some of the high quality names there. Um, We'll start off by saying uh, 2022 was a profoundly negative year for North American stocks. Somewhat surprisingly, 2023 has seen a significant recovery. While not recovering all the losses in most cases, indexes have made a significant move forward in 2023. But like I said, the market is bifurcated. Now, if we look at the S&P 500, it was down 19.3% in 2022. It's recovered in 2023 and is now up 19.2%. Uh, the NASDAQ, which was down 33.1% in 2022, is now up 37.79% year to date. While the recovery on both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ indexes appears strong, the headline numbers are a bit misleading as the gains, uh, particularly if you look at the start of November, where some of this data is coming from, is entirely powered by the mega cap Eight Alphabet, Amazon, uh, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Netflix, Nvidia, and Tesla, which account for over twenty-seven percent of the entire S and P five hundred. Now, to better illustrate my point, while the headline numbers show the S and P five hundred or the five hundred largest stocks in the U.S. market to have gained roughly nineteen point two percent year to date, it looks like a decent recovery, a strong recovery. However, if we remove the mega cap eight. It's really a tale of two markets. Uh, these stats are at the start of November, but there is somewhat of a change, but the signif- not a significant difference. Uh, if we look at year to date, the 2023 on an equally weighted basis, we're going to use the Magnificent 7, roughly the Mega Cap 8. Average gain was 71.36%. The other 493 stocks, the average loss was 4.26%. Now, below, we're going to look at a statistical representation of the disparity in the returns between the mega cap seven stocks and the other 493 stocks on the S&P 500. The 493 are in gray there. The mega cap seven are in whatever the heck that color is, that other color here. I'm going to call it like a pastel salmon. As you can see, the salmon mega cap seven has significant positive gains and the other 493 stocks in gray are down and had been down in 2023. All told, the majority of Canadian and U.S. stocks on average are having a rough to average year in 2023, despite what the headline numbers say. Uh, If you want further proof of this, look at the year-to-date performances on a couple of Canadian indexes that do not include the mega cap eight. Uh, You can see here, year-to-date, the TSX is up just slightly, just 3%, and the S&P TSX Venture, That sad exchange is down uh, in 2023, despite what has been a really significant rally in gold, you can see there. So let's take a look at broader market valuations from a historical perspective before we zero in on where the opportunities may lie in the current market. Now, one method or metric that we like to look at uh, is the Schiller P.E., it's a more reasonable market valuation indicator than the regular PE because it eliminates fluctuations, the ratio caused by variations of profit margins during business cycles. Now, if we see here, this is the Schiller PE over the last 20 years. The ratio reached its highest point right here in November of 2021 in the range of 38.6. That's 47% above the PE of the last 20 years. The average 
which was 26.2. If we look at this chart uh, all time, the Schiller PE over, this is over 100 years, we can see that November 2021, the pandemic stimulus induced mark was eclipsed literally once since it's been tracked right here. This was the dot com madness in 1999 when it hit roughly 44. For, so now we have some historical context. We can, uh, the question now should become where are we today in terms of valuations? Well, the Schiller PE is 31.1. That is about 18.3% higher than the recent 20 year average of 26.2. Uh, it's far better than the range of 38 that was hit in November of 2021, which was 47% above the PE of the last 20 years. However, it's instructive to point out that the Schiller PE is still 78% above its all-time average of 17.4, indicating we are not nearly historically cheap. It's better than the peak, but the risk remains and the market is bifurcated. Now, this is a simple chart here, uh, courtesy of Yardini Research. Uh, I'll take the simple part back when I look at it. Um, it looks like a plate of rainbow spaghetti. But let me try to make some sense of it here. It shows the valuation disparity between the large and mega cap stops represented by the current forward PE, which is in red and purple lines respectively, and the small cap universe represented by the green line there formed by the S&P 600 small cap index. As we can see here, the forward PE on the mega cap 8 and the S&P 500 is significantly higher than that of the mid and small cap indexes. Now, because this is a bit of a plate of spaghetti here, it's uh, difficult to take in. Let me just present these straight numbers for comparison purposes. This is the mega and large cap versus the small and mid cap stocks. The forward looking PEs, if we can see the mega cap eight, about 25.1 right now. S&P 500, 17.4 versus the small and mid cap. Well, the mid caps are at 12.4. And this small cap, 600, is about 11.5. If we drill down on the large cap versus small cap story even further, this is since 2005. The S&P 600 has historically traded at a premium to their larger cap S&P 500 counterparts. But as we can see today, small caps trade at a significant discount to their large cap brethren. Again, this chart shows the relative valuations have swung significantly in favor of larger cap companies, of course, not all, or sorry, in favor of small cap companies, really the, the divergence there in terms of valuations. Of course, not all small cap companies are opportunities, nor should all large cap companies be avoided, but there is a, could be a significant opportunity here, generally opening it up for long-term investors that are looking at high quality value and growth-based small cap stocks. Thank you. And, uh, you guys got any comments on that or should we just move on and you're muted. You're Aaron's muted. muted. So Aaron is trying to comment, but nobody wants to hear him. So we muted him. Is he back? He is not. There okay. I'm back now. There he's back. One of these days, maybe you, you fell off his chair. Go on and on and just nod your head and say, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> to the next. That's no, great, Tom, I did notice in the chart there that the valuation, <laughs> discount did narrow slightly over since 2022. Um, 
I don't know if there's any comments on that or there's any rationale there. I don't, yeah, I, well, I, I think like these numbers were at November, so we're gonna we're gonna have to pull up the numbers because there has been kind of a likely a narrowing. Although you know the Magnificent Seven has done quite well again in November mm -hmm. as well, so we might have seen a, a raise and raise. I think there might have been raises on both ends, but I I think the key point here too is when we're looking at it, uh, we've seen the highest quality, you know, cash rich growing cash flow, small caps really get a bump up in the last month and a half. Um, whereas, you know, if you do not have those, if you don't check off those boxes, you're not getting the bump. So at least mm -hmm. the market is being um, selective and uh, I think rewarding the right companies, which is nice to see. But, uh, you know, if you can find a company that marries those two, three, four items, growth, trading at a reasonable price, good balance sheet, uh, they're certainly getting rewarded that like, like we're not going to say the name of the company, but again, we just yes, recommended a company, yeah. two companies, but one in uh, the start of September, it's up 60, 65% since then all just really driven by quality results. And then another company that was just, you know, a month, three weeks ago, and the stock has gained 30% in, in, a, in less than a month, again, driven by good numbers, but both of them check off that good growth right now good growth expected over the next year, uh, strong balance sheet and, you know, just traded at reasonable valuation. So you're, you're seeing those type of businesses. Um, I've heard people say, is it value stocks? I think it's growth and value. So growth or reasonable price that have really been uh, rec or kind of recognized over and are starting to get uh, a kick up in terms of the market. Perhaps the lesser quality, if there is a play in the small caps, start to pick up. But again, I, I don't want to be invested in those companies. I, I would be the ones who lead the market, the high quality names, and those are the ones you want to look for. All right, we're going to move to, and uh, we're going to finalize, aren't we? We're going to Brett here. We're going to close out the show. And, and you're looking at champion R. Are they a champion? That's what we want to know, a market champion going forward. That, that's a great play on words, isn't it? You're skipping over Aaron. Damn it, Aaron was muted. I, was I don't even. Of, I, I, I kicked him out of the show. I kicked him out of the show. That's right. I'll oh, just do mine next week. <laughs> I knew there was. There's two. I can't even remember. You see, having Brennan go first. I messed it up. I'm having Brennan go first. Screws it all up. First here, and then yeah. we'll, 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 <laughs> skipping out of his homework. I think it's true. Trying to he, teacher forgets who's presenting and doesn't remind him. <laughs> Aaron like wants to save the best for last, right? Yeah, that's probably the strategy. No, yeah, we'll go with that. All right, I'll go into Champion Iron, though. So Champion Iron, simple CIA, not the intelligence agency on the TSX, currently trades at a price of 689 and a market cap of $3.6 And it's materially flat year-to-date within a few pennies. Whatever is trading out by the time you're listening will probably be a bit off of flat, but it is flat in all reality. The company does pay a dividend yield of 2.8%. Champion Iron, if you are not know, if you do not know, or you couldn't tell from the name, is an iron ore producer which owns and operates Bloom Lake Mining Complex located at the south end of the Labrador Trough, approximately 13 kilometers north of Fermont, Quebec. Bloom Lake is an open pit iron ore operation with a mine life of about 20 years and a concentrator that primarily sources its energy from renewable hydroelectric power. We last looked at the company in May. It had higher ca cash costs due to inflation as well as fixed costs related to its Bloom Lake expansion. And shortly after we covered it, 
there was a major fire in the area which disrupted operations in fiscal Q1. So let's see where the company is today. We'll be looking at the fiscal Q2 2024 results, which ended at September 30th, 2023. So calendar Q3. The company reported a quarterly production of 3.45 million wet metric tons, or WMT, of 66.1% iron concentrate, a year-over-year increase of 21% attributed to the phase two concentrator, which came into production at the end of the last calendar year. Despite the record, production was still actually lower than what they desired due to an unscheduled outage in one of the company's conveyor belts affecting the phase two concentrator. The company is still working towards its target of 15 million tons per annum. Right now, you'd be looking at about 14 if you analyze this last quarter. The company's revenue is up 29% to 388 million off of net average realized selling price, which increased 25% to 134.4 per dry metric tons from $107.6 per dry metric tons. Cash costs came in at 73.7 per dry metric ton, up 12% from 65.9 in the prior year. However, cash costs are actually lower from the prior quarters, 81.3. The company benefited from lower fuel costs as well as higher volumes, lowering the impact of their fixed costs. So on average, it comes down when you have higher volumes, fixed costs uh, have less of an effect on a per ton basis. However, the company still saw higher all-in sustaining costs, which includes CapEx required to sustain the production at the current levels. It was at 99.1 per dry metric ton from 81.9 last year and 94.1 last year. So CapEx had to have larger spend during the quarter. This result of higher selling price as well as increased costs, it resulted in a cash operating margin of 35.3 per dry metric ton, which is up from 25.7 in the prior year with cash margins of 26 and 24% respectively. So still hovering around the same cash margin, but as prices went up, they ended up benefiting from the result. EBITDA as a result increased to 155 million from 84 million in the prior year. So a quick look at the iron ore prices. Volatility really has finally started to seem to come down from that 2021-2022 price. It's now trading between 100 and 130 for most of the year. And like all commodity-driven stocks, the stock can really only do as well as the underlying commodity, in this case, iron ore, which it will allow to do. So if we were to see a macroeconomic shock that brought the price down to, let's say, the 2015 low, no matter how strong the company is doing, no matter how great their phase two is going and so on, their financials would be dismal if it went back down to that level. And obviously, if we saw a sustained increase, up to, let's say, that 200 to 20 range that we saw during the pandemic, the opposite would be true and their financials would look great. After the quarter's end as well, the company raised an additional 230 million US through a five-year fixed-term loan, and it extended its 400 million revolver to 2026. Their plans for this fund is to add additional organic growth, specifically its direct reduction pellet feed production, which increases the grade of iron ore output to be allowed to be used in electric arc furnaces. The net debt position sits at 230.5 million and a net debt to EBITDA ratio of 0.43 times. The company is trading at a trailing EV to EBITDA of 7.2 times, which is it's not cheap, but it's not absurdly overvalued. I think last time we looked at it, it was a bit lower in the mid sixes. 
So it's come up a bit in valuation, but it's not exactly the most expensive uh, company either for production. So in conclusion, the company is set up for organic growth in the coming quarters as phase two production starts to lap its prior year. And in the, the medium term, it will benefit from the direct reduction pellet feed, which it raised its money for already and then now be slated to begin in the second half of 2025, production that is. And leverage is not really a concern at this time, but you should really always pay attention to, especially with cyclical and commodity-driven companies, because if we do see, let's say, a big shock, returns back to those 2015, 2016 levels, the impact of having that debt on the balance sheet, even if they are planning on using it for growth, will still impact the companies dramatically. So it's obviously a risk that needs to be watched. So really, if one is bullish on the outlook of iron as a whole, Iron Champion is a suitable path to play, given its strong underlying operations, its growth. It has a bit of a dividend to it, so you do have a bit of that cash coming back to you. So it's not a bad option if you are in the market for an iron company. And I'll open up Brennan, to you guys. you in the market for an iron company? You know, I think that it's interesting. Just like we had this company in our uh, as a monitor in our uh, 2022 cash rich report because the company was in a net cash position at that time. Um, in my report, uh, iron was 141 US dollars per ton and the stock was trading at $7.21. Well, now it's about $130 US per ton and the stock's trading just under $7. So, you know, again, we're, you know, it's only been a year uh, or a little bit over, but, you know, again, we're kind of confirming you know, the, the price is correlated to, you know, the underlying commodity. Uh, of course, we've, we've seen, uh, you know, iron pull back a bit. Well, so, to, so has the stock price. Um, and it, of course, it depends on their output and whatnot as well. Um, but again, it's, you know, they're tied to that. And um, to answer your question, Ryan, no, I will uh, not be buying an iron company. I mean, it's not bad. It's, it's interesting for sure. But uh, yeah. Well, the show has seemed very smart to uh, to start this week. Let's dumb it down a little and, and bring Aaron in here. And uh, I thought let it was dumb down the when you forgot that I was <laughs> even true. presenting. No, no, I blame. I blame. I'm just kidding. Oh, I blame. Uh, I blame just bringing Brennan on first. It, it just throws me off. I don't. He's never been first. I don't think so. Don't and it think just, so. you know, I, I always think you've gone. If Brennan's gone, I think you've gone, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. Let's smarten it up a little, okay? And Aaron's gonna, Aaron's gonna talk about some stock, right? What is it? Uh, apparently, <laughs> I am gonna Element do Fleet your stock Element Fleet, the largest fleet management company in the world. How could I forget about that? Mm-hmm. All right, just and Aaron's. We we, we tried to give him a lot of time to queue up his <laughs> slide, but he's still there. We go perfect. Now there's he's something wrong it. with my computer here. Okay, good. Yes, thank you for your. We got it. Patience. Okay, so Element Fleet Management, uh, as Ryan said, they are the largest automotive fleet manager in the world. Uh, they offer fleet ser- management services, including vehicle acquisition, maintenance accident handling, remarketing, and also electric vehicle integration. So um, customers that are starting to use EVs in their fleet, obviously they need management in terms of being able to charge them and maintain them. 
uh, element services, corporations, governments, and not-for-profits across North America, Australia, and New Zealand. The company symbol is EFN on the TSX. It's trading right now at about $22. It's a almost $9 billion market cap company, and it has a yield right now of 2.2%. Looking at the company's share price appreciation over the past 12 months, uh, pretty reasonable growth starting the 12-month period at about $19. Um, right now up about, as I said, just over 22, but a lot of volatility along the way. So let's take a look at this business, starting with the recent financial results. Q3, uh, revenue increased 3.3%, uh, so a little better than flat to $333 million. Adjusting operating income up just under 4% to $185 million. And adjusted operating margin improved by 30 basis points to 55 0.4%. So nice, healthy operating margins for this business. Uh, adjusted EPS of 35 cents, up 6.1% compared to the third quarter of last year. Um, somewhat better growth in the year-to-date period. So for the first nine months of 2023, revenue growth of 14% to $960 million. Adjusted operating income up just under 12% to $528 million. Adjusted operating margins were actually down 140 basis points to 55%, still very strong operating margins. And then adjusted EPS up 18% to 98 cents. So one of the things that I've, I've really wondered about uh, Element Fleet Management is just really what they do. Um, they really market themselves as a fleet management company, which to me, that is, it implies a service business. You're providing a, a you're getting a fee for a service which is managing a fleet of vehicles. Um, but I also noticed that there's a lot of financing in their business as well. So let's break apart the year-to-date revenues and see what comes from financing, what comes from service. So service income uh, was 502 million in the year-to-date period, whereas financing income was 415 million, and then syndication revenue, 43 million. I'm not sure what syndication revenue is. But it's the service revenue, the financing revenue that really dominate the company. And we can see here that, yes, it is a fee-for-service business, but that's only a little more than half of the company's revenues. And in fact, close to half comes from financing. So um, receiving, essentially making loans, receiving interest payments um, in return for those loans. So this is something that I'll touch on in a couple more slides because it's really important in terms of analyzing the business. Now, the company has put out guidance for 2023 and 2024. Um, for the current year, we only have one quarter left. They're looking at about 7.5% um, at the midpoint of their guidance, 7.5% growth in net revenue, 8.5% growth in adjusted operating income, adjusted EPS in the range of 126 to 131, which would be 14% growth year over year, and then free cash flow per share of 158 to 163, which would be up 15% from 2022. And then looking at the 2024 guidance compared to the midpoint of the 2023 guidance, revenue is expected to be up 10%. They're expecting about 100 basis points improvement in operating margin. Uh, operating income uh, expected to be up 11%, adjusted EPS 12% to 141 to 146, and then free cash flow per share they're expecting to be up 11% to 175 to 180.
The company did discuss some strategic initiatives, which it is focused on in order to drive growth going into the future. Uh, one of these is centralizing the U.S. and Canadian leasing operations, so a consolidation of, uh, of management um, for the leasing operations in North America. Uh, another is establishing a strategic sourcing presence in Asia. So this is opening a new office in Singapore, which strengthens the global procurement capabilities of the company. They're advancing their digitization and automation focus um, in order to drive future growth and as well as improve operating efficiencies. Uh, they want to focus on a capital light business model. So shifting towards a business model that relies less on capital intensity. I would imagine this is um, stepping away from their financing business more. Uh, so this includes growing their services, revenue, syndicating assets, and also providing access to cost-effective funding. And then also optimizing their capital structure. So they have plans to redeem high-cost legacy preferred shares, um, as well as streamlining their, their capital structure. Now, when I look at the company's historic performance, um, I see good growth in 2022, uh, good growth also expected in 2023 and 2024 for the full years. But really previous to 2022, and I only go back five years, the company has a longer history than that. Uh, not really a lot of growth and really some, some fluctuation in financial performance. So it seems like the consistency of growth hasn't really been there. We're starting to see growth ramp up now, um, certainly if, if the company is able to hit their targets going forward. Looking at the balance sheet, and this is a concern for me, $10.2 billion in debt, only about $75 million in cash, $3.9 billion in equity. So that's a debt to equity of 2.6. I'm not as concerned about that as I am about the debt to EBITDA. I have it at almost 14 times. So that's, that's a high multiple. Now, I think that this has a lot to do with their focus on financing. Um, analyzing the balance sheet of a financing company is different than anal analyzing the balance sheet of a conventional operating business. Um, but they do market themselves as a fleet management company, which I, I understand to be a, a service business. So looking at that, that's even a multiple of nearly 14 times is well outside of our comfort range. Um, you know, we're generally, for a cyclical business, uh, less than half times EBITDA or less than one times. You know, for a company that has like moderate cyclicality, you know, maybe from one to 2.5 times. Some businesses can get away with higher debt to EBITDA multiples like uh, utilities or companies that are, that are defensive. But even then, you know, you're usually talking five, six, maybe seven times. So this this looks to me like a high debt to EBITDA multiple. Uh, and then looking at valuation, so based on their 2023 guidance, trading at about 17 times price to earnings, trading at about 15 times um, their next year's adjusted EBITDA guidance. So what do we think of the company? Well, positive financial performance in 2022 for the first three, three quarters of 2023 as well. They also have a positive outlook for growth going into 2024. They do have a growing dividend uh, and they have potential to drive efficiencies through data analytics, which is interesting. The valuation is okay, but I'm, I'm going to touch back on that in a second. Um, a few of the things I don't like about the companies, one, it's a very complex business. I don't know how 
devalue it? Do I value it as a financing company? Do I value it as a service business? Nearly half of the revenue comes from financing activities. They also have high debt leverage, not really a great history of consistent growth um, in revenue and earnings per share pre-2022. So our take here, the debt is a concern. And when I look at valuation, if this were 100% or even an 80% service business and it was just fleet management, then I would say that the valuation starts to look pretty good. But as a financing business, I would expect the valuation to be lower. So just for example, the banks, um, they're all trading for less than 10 times earnings, right? So 15 to 17 times for a company that is largely or almost half financing, um, that's starting to look like maybe the valuation isn't that attractive. Um, so this is a company, we'll continue to monitor it. It's interesting. They seem to have good potential or momentum in their financial performance. Um, but debt certainly is something we would need to look, dig, dig, dig deeper, deeper into. Um, and also just how to value it. Um, are they going to maintain that, that, that big focus on financing or do they want to shift more to the service side? And I'll open it to you for comments. Okay. Well, I mean, I think you did a good summary on the business. Um, I think that in terms of, uh, there has been good results over the past couple of years, but, um, you know, if you go back to three, four years prior to that, they're kind of just equaling the revenue level they did at that point. And the, uh, I think the growth multiple that you're asked to pay for the stock, uh, right now, in my opinion, doesn't, uh, doesn't equate to the growth that you're going to see in the business. So I think it's fair. It would be fair value, in my opinion. I don't think you're getting much. Um, um, you're not getting, there's not a ton of growth. Uh, if you look back three, four years and, uh, the multiple that you're being asked to pay is more of a growth year oriented multiple for a finance related company. Yeah. I was uh, a little surprised too, when you did get to the balance sheet, uh, because I, I was, you know, reading their conference call, uh, as you were doing your, your section and, you know, they're, they're talking about, they just recently increased their annual common dividend by 20%. You know, they're also talking about redeeming their remaining outstanding preferred share. So I don't know how much, you know, that'll be, um, they're continuing to buy back share. So, I mean, they do have, what was it under a hundred million in cash, but you know, this, this might eat into that, you know, it's going to be, I was a little surprised anyways. Um, and I will say as well, the syndication is them creating asset backed securities. So that can just be seen as financing revenue, really. Mm-hmm. So More it really is about 50% of the business <laughs> yeah. yeah, and financing. Good. All right. Well, let's end it off on that note. Uh, keep your questions coming into our Your Stock, Our Take segment. If you got a couple of companies we, you want us to compare, take the, send those into as well. Um, and if you've got any of your predictions for the upcoming year, we're working on our predictions show for 2024, which is uh, upcoming shortly. If you got any predictions or anything you want us to comment on in terms of what's going to happen, what we think will happen in the markets for 2024, we're going to revisit our predictions from last year, see which of us are winners and which one of us are losers. That should be a fun segment. As always, again, you you want to smash that subscribe button. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening to us uh, right now on iTunes, Keep those recommendations or those reviews coming in. Only positive reviews. We really need it. We love positive reviews. All right. That's going to kill the show for this week. And as always, I wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.
Thank you.